the optimal life. So the first thing that stuck out to me, Dan, when I look at your past 25 years of your life, you've had quite a few uh, tragedies, adversities that you faced. And, and going back into the late 90s, it seems like the first major one you faced was a uh, um, an intervention with a crackhead. <laughs> well, if you wanted to call that, yeah. Um, I lived in D.C. during the Marion Bear years. So it was a really bad area. And, like, even if you lived in, like, a very inexpensive area, they still put geese around the building so you didn't get robbed. And uh, we had uh, my girlfriend that I was living with brought her sister in. She came from the suburbs, didn't really know any better. So she went around the block walking her fluffy white dog. She got attacked by a crackhead. He forced her to bring to go into the house. And then um, he was pretending he had a knife. He didn't have a knife, but, you know, he saw a hammer. He grabbed that and he was like, trying to smash her brains out, like threatening to smash her brains out. And I intervened, and uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's a long story. But, you know, I ended up getting stabbed, and he ran away. He stabbed you with what, a knife? Yeah, it, so, well, all right, so I, I'll tell you a little bit more. So in D.C., like, obviously you're not allowed to have a handgun, but it's a really dangerous area, so you're allowed to have a knife. But they have rules it's like you can't have it concealed, you know, so it can't be shorter than a certain length, like can't be shorter than your palm, you know, so it has to be visible, but it also can't be displayed. It just has to be like in the sheath. So I would wear a knife all the time and I worked at the dishwasher and that probably saved my life. I don't know how many times, you know, but so when Wait, crack- let me just ask, let me just ask you, I'm sorry. What do you mean that that probably saved your life? You don't know how many times. Uh, Well, I look very, very punk rock, like, you know, blue mohawk, like spiky leather jacket, you know, and, and I'd be walking around the neighborhood and it, it would get a lot of attention. But, you know, there are a lot of people that like they look at you and they look at the knife you have strapped to your belt and then they look away. You know, so there's probably there are lots of people I know that, you know, they get roughed up and they get robbed and they get stuff like that. So so just the fact that they saw your appearance and that they saw that you had a weapon on you, you believed kept trouble away. Yeah. Many times. Okay. Yes. Got it. Got it. Okay. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No problem. So anyways, the the, this crackhead like, um, well, two of them initially came up to her and one actually had a knife and he showed it to her and one pretended like he had a gun and then he got into the apartment he didn't actually have a gun but there was a hammer because i had a tool chest laying around he grabbed the hammer grabbed her head was holding her like this you know and she called up to me and my girlfriend she sounded hysterical um so i came down the steps like what's going on and i see the crackhead holding her with the hammer and I'm like, hey, man, what do you want? And he's like, his eyes are all jaundiced. and He's not even looking right. He's like, I wanted money. I'm like, she didn't have any money, man. She didn't have any. So I'm like reaching in my pocket, you know, because he's like, well, what do you do? I'm like, I just got changed, man. I just got changed, you know. So I'm pulling the chain in my pocket, and he inches over with her. And then, like, obviously, he doesn't trust me. So he's like hitting my pocket, like, you know, and when he hits it, he hits a knife. And he starts to grab the knife. And I'm like, I'm not letting a crackhead get a knife. Mm. So then I like grab the knife and I grab the, and then he swings a hammer and I grab the hand with the hammer and I'm smashing that against the wall. And meanwhile, he's like pulling the knife out. And he's trying to stab me in the stomach and I have a flight jacket and I have all these little holes in the flight jacket and all these little punctures on my stomach. 
where he was like trying to stab me and, and I kept managing to stop him. So just like the tip of the blade would hit me. And meanwhile, while I'm fighting with him, it's sawing through my finger and saws all the way through the tin and all the way to the bone. Wow. Holy shit, man. That had to be an absolutely horrific moment <laughs> in your life. I mean, I I'm curious. When you come out down those steps and you see the crackhead holding your girlfriend hostage, essentially, he's got her from behind. You're showing you were showing well, it my before. girlfriend's sister, my girlfriend's sister, your girlfriend's yeah. sister. And, yeah. and he's got her from behind. And you are in a moment where you have to make a, a quick decision. This is a really I mean, this is a life or death situation, it looks like. Um, what's the thing? What goes through your head? I mean, how do you process that within a split second? I don't know. I feel like everything that happens, I just go, what do I need to do to address this right now? Like, I don't think about, like, all the long-lasting repercussions or, or whatever. I mean, that's probably put me in danger more than once. But, you know, I, I don't go, hey, what should I go? I mean, I got to do something. And you, it sounded like your initial instinct was to keep things cool. Like, hey, man. Like, you know, let's talk about this, right? That's kind of was your approach. Your approach wasn't aggression. Your approach right, right. was let's keep this thing cool and peaceful and try to cool off a little bit. Right. Well, yeah, I never tried to be aggressive. Like, it, it doesn't lead anywhere. You know, I, I try to, to be chill with people, you know, talk to people. If they have a problem, address the problem. Don't flip out on them because, it, it, you know, you get all amped up, they get all amped up, it just goes nowhere. It just goes to straight chaos and the worst possible outcome. So that crackhead ends up getting away, and, and then he's never seen from again? Is that what happens? Right. Well, he, he kept trying to stab me, and I kept smashing his hand with the hammer. And my girlfriend came down the steps, and we had the heavy end of a, a pool cue, like sawed off heavy end of a pool cue. She's smashing him in the head. And she hits him seven times, and he's so screwed up that he just jerks his head like this. And then when she hits him the last time, he looks at her like, I'll kill you. So she runs upstairs, and she's calling the cops. Meanwhile, I managed to finally get the hammer out of his hand, and <clears throat> I managed to get the handle of the knife, and I grab the knife, and then he runs. You know, and I go chasing after him, but he's wearing, like, steel-toed boots, so, you know, and he's a crackhead, so he had, like, that... Crackhead energy. He just he fled. <laughs> he fled off into the shadows, and, and, and that was the end of him. Well, out the front door, and, you know. Yeah, and, it, but you never, you never encountered him again. No, and we called like my girl after she hit the crackhead a bunch of times. She goes upstairs to call the cops, and they were one block away. It took her forty five minutes to get there. You know, and while she's talking, she's like, "Yeah, please, my boyfriend is fighting with the crackhead," and they're like. Ma'am, if you don't calm down, we'll hang it up. And then 45 minutes later, they come, and they call from across the street. They're like, is he still there? <laughs> We're like, no, he's not here. <laughs> it's incredible. The the incompetence of, of some people in some systems. You know, it, it's in that in the city like that, they get so much, so many calls, it feels like probably of the exact same thing that you called about. It, it, it's just like they've got to pick their – their priorities because there's for there's crackheads on every block causing problems to multiple people every single day. It seems like, well, there are a lot of crackheads in that era. That was like the Marion Barry era of like DC. It was like yeah, the nineties yeah. and the cops were notoriously corrupt at that time. 
Like mm-hmm. right as I was leaving, uh, I think 12 cops got busted because they had a warehouse. And what they do is they bust Coke dealers, store the Coke and resell it. Mm. Wow. Well, that's a nice business model. <laughs> um, okay. So that happens. That that happens. Is that a life altering event for you? I guess my, my question is, is in the coming, the days that were to follow, did that rattle you? Did that screw with your mental health, your your sanity? How, how did you respond to that in the days and weeks that followed? Well, I definitely took it as a huge event, very seriously. But I was like a skinny little punk rocker. I was like 135 pounds, like smoking two pack cigarettes a day, you know, drinking and doing drugs, and everything. So I, I, I was like, I need to learn how to protect myself. So I got into Taekwondo. I'm a second new black belt now. Um, but I, I moved on to jiu-jitsu and Muay Thai. But the thing is, at the time, I got into that, and, you know, I quit cigarettes. I, I was totally straight-edge for, like, eight years. Like, you know, wouldn't drink anything, no drugs. I started taking vitamins. I got, like, it totally changed my lifestyle. Wow. So that that negative event that night was a real epiphany moment for you, it sounds like. It, it sounds was. like yeah. had that event not occurred, there was no way that you were going to make such drastic changes in your life, at least not yet. That's true. Yeah. So you took this negative event and you found positive outlets. You quit the the drugs, the booze, probably you, you, you eliminated a lot of that. The smoking went away and then you found uh, martial arts. You found self-defense. Right. Yeah, I, I started working out. I started taking vitamins. I like it, it. You're right. It was life altering, and I was like, "This is the worst thing that's ever happened to me." And I don't. It, it could have gone way worse, and I don't ever want to be put in that situation again. I'm like, "What can I do to make a drastic change?" The Muay Thai and the eventual jujitsu. What did that do for your emotional well being? Well. I also, I also had brain cancer, um, and my wife also died in hand run. So it's like I'm saying that say life is a rocky road, and by having something that gives you a pattern, by having people that you know you know that you see every week, like it helps you out. It, it helps like put you on a more level tempo. You felt more safety and security in your life. I don't know if I felt more safety and security. I felt more connection. You felt more connection. Did you feel more peaceful? Yes. Did you feel more more loving? Uh, well, I, I definitely felt that more people care about. Like my my parents also. Like you know, I, I wouldn't. I'm not going to talk too much about it, but like I called them up and I was like, yeah, I have brain cancer. Um, they say I have about a 50, 50 chance to make it and they have to operate within four days. And my parents were like, well, you know, last minute plane tickets are expensive. So, so they didn't visit me in the hospital, you know? Mm. So, you know, but I don't look to them for support. Like it, it, I feel like they're very conservative, very religious. When I got like in a punk rock, they, they kind of disowned me. I was homeless for eight months, you know, like live in the woods, homeless. So that's not my community, but the martial arts community did help me out. It was like a, a second family for you or it became your family. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, your family is who you choose to make your family. And that's who I chose. So I want to talk about this brain cancer event. So you, you were already in martial arts when you got the diagnosis, correct? Right. Okay. 
take us back. I mean, what is going on? Um, were, were there some signs and symptoms that you were dealing with that were causing you distress or stress or making you feel uncomfortable where you said, I, I need to go get checked out? Well, I was, I just started um, tattooing a, a bit earlier and I finally made it into like a downtown shop. So I felt like I was on my way, but I wasn't making much money and I started getting headaches. And at first I was like, you know, oh, just like, you know, it's cold or something. And then after a week of taking Advil, making go away every day, I was like, this is not normal. So I went to a clinic and they're like, oh, well, it's migraines, you know, and then I, they prescribed me something. The pharmacist couldn't read it. They advised me to go to another clinic. I went there. So finally, I went to the hospital. And the hospital was like, you know, um, it's a brain bleed. You're doing Muay Thai. You probably got hit in the head. We'll put you in a cascade. It's a brain bleed. They put me in the cascade. They're like, oh, wait, it's cancer. So within a, a week of you having these headaches you have these headaches ongoing for a, a period about a week you go get checked and then within a matter of a couple different medical opinions it leads you to the news that you have cancer just like that yeah well and the thing is like it, it kind of like started abruptly like first i'm getting headaches and that lasted for like you know a week and then the headaches got really really bad like i felt like i had a jackhammer to the back of my head you know and, and so that's when i finally like, I went to the clinic, and it wasn't quite that bad when I went to the second clinic. But the next morning, you know, I was, like, kneeled over the sink. I was, like, throwing up from the night before. So my girlfriend actually had to call the clinic and say, you know, hey, this was going on. What should I do? And they're like, go to the hospital. Go to the hospital. So I went to the hospital, and, like, I couldn't even walk straight. Like, I'm trying to walk in, and my girlfriend's like, you know, correcting me because they keep, like, wandering off sideways. And then when I come in, they gave me some sort of medication which took away the headaches. You know, they, they right. mitigated it for a little while. And I, I could, like, think a little bit more clearly. But by that point, I was just, like, glad that they found out what it was. So what what's the reaction again? Uh, I asked you what your immediate initial reaction was when you have a crackhead holding your girlfriend's sister hostage in front of your eyes. What's your initial reaction when somebody says you have brain cancer? They said you have brain cancer. I, I wanted to know what was going on with it, like how long it had been there, how did it come about, and um, they told me my chance. So I was just like, okay, okay. And I remember my girlfriend, she was like crying. She's like, you don't care. I'm like, well, of course I care, but what am I going to do? I just want to know the best way to address it. You didn't have time to feel sad. It was like, no. right? You're in, you're in defense mode, and you're just like, okay, what do we need to do to fix this thing? I can't right, sit well, here and sulk. Right. Well, I feel sad when things happen to other people. When they happen to me, I, I try and look at how I can fix it. Mm, that's uh that's an interesting take too. It's interesting when we're going through something traumatic, we don't have time to feel sad for ourselves. Yet when we see somebody else going through something traumatic, we have a lot of time to feel sad. Right. So well, go, ahead. go ahead. I was going to say the only, like, I'm not super emotional, like probably a little bit that by like Norwegian, you know, military parents or like very like, you know, like, like after I had brain cancer and I saw my dad, he just shakes my hand. It's like, hello, Daniel. <laughs> so, so, 
we're not hyper emotional, but the only times that I've gotten hyper emotional, like I think I've cried like twice in my life. And cried twice in your life. Wow. Yeah. And one time was when my wife was on her deathbed after hit and run. And I remember I just broke down. Before we get to that, before we get to that, that's that's you. Like I said, at the, when we first started, you've you've overcome quite a bit um, on this brain cancer thing. How did you uh, what did you put into place? So, so somebody that's listening to this may be going through the exact same thing. They just got the diagnosis. What did you do, Dan, um, to at least start your recovery? Well, anything that um Anything I go through, I try to do a deep dive. Like, we were to go into martial arts. I was, like, reading books and sparring all the time and working out and all this stuff. So when I found out I had brain cancer, I got a lot of books. I was doing a lot of reading. Um, I was uh, – this is before YouTube. I didn't even have a computer at the time. <laughs> like, maybe YouTube was around, but, you know, I didn't have access to it. But I remember uh, I was asking people. I was, like, trying to do as much research into it as humanly possible – and my whole, you know, and I remember I kind of lucked out and the, the doctor that I had was Dr. Finley. He's like some expert from the UK that was doing an internship there. And he just took my case. Like people can't believe that I was in Bellevue Hospital and I lived, but he took my case. And I remember asking him, I was like, hey, I read that they're doing this with cancer. And he would actually, he wasn't arrogant. He would take the time to explain to me. He's like, well, you know. This is what the problem is, is what they're running into. But I tried to go over everything. And I was like, well, you know, what what helps? Like, what food's best? You know, what, what should I do? Like, and anything that I do, I try to push the boundaries. So, like, I was still working out three days a week while I was going through chemotherapy. You know, I was still, I was still working at the tattoo shop. So I, I just like as much of my normal life as I could maintain. I tried. I'm like, I'm going to get through this. And then how does how do you like what happens? Um, what happens? Is there a day that comes where they tell you that the cancer is gone? Well, I went through. So they do the surgery and then they do what's called a pathology on it. And they see if it's malignant or benign. If it's benign, it's a tumor. If it's malignant, it's cancer. So they're like, it's malignant, so um, you can do chemotherapy or you can do radiation or you can do both. And the chances if you do both are much, much better. So I did both, but that it, it devastates you, like especially chemotherapy. Chemotherapy is horrible. Um, like I went from 174 pounds down to 130, you know, and, and – like I, I I couldn't eat more than something that was super super blessed. So I'd have to have thin, well cooked steak, and I have to have rice with nothing on it. Mm-hmm. Like anything yeah. else, I just throw up. But yeah, you basically feel like you're whittling away. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And, and the whole time they're doing MRIs, so you know every like you know month and a half, two months, whatever they would do an MRI and they see you know if the tumor came back. And after they say after five years, they consider you cured. That doesn't mean that you'll never get cancer again, but that means that you probably have about the same chance as everyone else. And that's exactly what where you stand today. You have not had it since the early 2000s. Is that correct? Right, unless we're in the matrix right now. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's uh, that's incredible. And then and then you mentioned too uh, again, the third uh, 
pretty catastrophic, not pretty catastrophic, uh, uh, an event that has made you cry. That's only happened twice in your life um, is the the uh, the hit and run death of uh, was this your wife at the time? Yeah, this is my girlfriend when they had cancer. And um, like we'd only been going out for a short period of time. She was a recent immigrant from Columbia, so we had a little bit of a language barrier. You know, I, I think we weren't like real sure where this is going to go. But then once I had cancer, you know, she stuck with me. And she was fairly young and I, she was 23 at the time, you know, and, and like most people would go, yeah, that's too serious. And they, they duck out. Like I had plenty of friends that did that every day she was there. You know, and she she looked really sad. I was like, "This is a good person." So mm. then we got married. In now, let me just interject real quick, if you don't mind, Dan. It sounds okay. as if her her commitment to you is really what opened your eyes to this is someone I want to spend my life with. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And initially, like we were just going out, but initially she was playing on getting married to get her green card. Like her her dad was. Um, he was a general in Columbia and he was getting threatened by terrorists. So they moved here and they had all applied, you know, for asylum, but you know, the, it was taking a while. It's New York. So it was taking a while. So she's like, I'm just going to get married to like a friend of mine. I was like, well, you're going out with me, you know, marry me. And, and she said, Oh, well, I don't want to put that on you. I'm like, look, if it doesn't work out, I'm not going to be a dick, you know? And so we got married, but then it, it went from that, like, you know, like convenience is something that was serious and, and you know we we i i guess at some point it both hit us and it became more serious to us excuse me yeah okay so what happens i mean uh uh what happens with this hit and run incident well she was taking music lessons at pratt so she would leave on a motorcycle early in the morning to drive to pratt pratt is in brooklyn and where we lived was Right, it would go right alongside um, Red Hook, Brooklyn. You know, it would go right alongside where all the after-hour bars let out from the city. So, what we think is, you know, somebody was at an after-hour bar on Friday. You know, they got drunk and they came back, and it was like I don't remember if it was nine in the morning or seven in the morning, but I, they they hit her and they just kept going. And they never found these people. No, we we hired a private investigator. Um, initially, the NYPD was blowing this off, and we got an attorney, and we said, what can we do? And uh, she did some alternative modeling, and they said, pitch her as a model. So that's what we did. We pitched her as a model instead of a tattoo artist. She was a tattoo artist. So we pitched her as a model. Suddenly, everyone was covering it. Mm. You know, I was, I was the, the negative stigma associated with tattoos, huh? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it's just like, oh, it's a tattoo artist, uh, it's an immigrant, she was on a motorcycle. Like, she had all these strikes against her, you know. Although her being on a motorcycle meant the whole motorcycle community kicked in, and mm. then the whole tattoo community kicked in. So, like, we, we, we did, um, we raised funds for a funeral and for, we had a reward. For, we hired a private investigator. You know, and they were all donated towards that. Dan, how did you find out about this uh, incident? Did the police come to your place? Uh, how does that happen? No, they called me in the morning and they called me at actually it must have been at seven because they called me at nine 
you know, and they're like, yeah, are you married to Monica Hank? And like immediately I'm weak, like fully weak. I'm like, yeah, what? What's going on? You know, and they're like, oh, I don't know. She ran a stop sign or something. Like they, you could tell that they just, they didn't give two fucks. I don't know if I can curse that here, but you can. But so wait a second. They tell you that she ran a stop. They, do they tell you that she's been deceased? No. In, in, in fact, what happened is they took her to the closest hospital, which was in the Marcy Projects, which it, at the time it was a really bad hospital. Um, it might still be, but the EMT did communicate with the emergency room. So when she got hit, it, it threw her up in the air. She fell down on her head and broke her neck. So there was like basically no blood to the brain, you know, and no air to the brain for 30 minutes before they got to the hospital. But they didn't tell the emergency room. So the emergency room revived her on machines. So she was actually alive on machines for a few days. And it was two days before we even knew what was going on. Like every time, like the machines go up a little bit, we're like, "Oh, she's gonna make it. She'll be better." But there, there was no chance. The most, the most brutal forty-eight to seventy-two hours of your life, I take it. It, it was pretty bad, yeah. And then what yeah. happens? Uh, what happens? Take us back, if you would, to that moment where, uh, the moment where you realize she's not coming back. Well, the so the the first night I stayed there. And then I went downstairs to get coffee. And then I go to go back upstairs. And the security guard's like, you can go. I was like, what do you mean? Uh, my wife is dying upstairs. And they're like, yeah, he's not visiting hours. I'm like, you know, if I flip out, then they're just going to kick me out. So I was like, how? Like, through their teeth, I'm like, how can I make it upstairs? They're like, talk to the desk. So I go to the desk. I asked her to call the doctor. She calls the doctor. The doctor goes, yeah, of course he can come up. And the security guard goes, no, tell him that he has to call me personally. So I asked the lady at the security desk, again, through green teeth, if she can recall the doctor. She's like, no, why should I? So I have to go to a payphone, call the doctor, you know. But even with all that going on, you know, I'm, like, trying to figure out, you know, like, like, like I said, the vitals would go up and down. You know, and the doctor has this very, like, skeptical look, but he's not saying anything, really. And, but what they are saying is just saying, you know, we need to put her in a CAT scan, and she's too unstable to even bring her to a CAT scan. So I called my friend Rachel, who's uh, the guitarist in the station, but also at the time worked for the medical examiner's office. And at first she was like, get her out of that hospital. But then she's like, you know, they make a portable CAT scan so they can bring that up to her. So I remember I told that to the doctors, and they go, Oh, they do? Who makes it? <laughs> mm. So finally they did a CAT scan and they're like, yeah, there's no hope. Well, and, what, what, what's again, the third time I'll ask you this in this in this conversation, what's the immediate initial reaction when you find out that she's not going to survive? Well, when they said there's no hope, that's when I broke down. That was like, when you I, broke I was down. Sick, yeah, I was standing over her bed. And I remember my brother-in-law, her brother was like, you know, like, I forget the exact word, but he was trying to reassure me, like, like it's okay, it's okay, Dan, it's okay. Was that the second time in your life that you ever cried or the first time? I think that was the first time. I mean, I might have when I was like a little kid, I just don't remember. What but was the second time after that then? My dog died. He had and cancer. Dog died. What was more, what was it harder for you to recover from, the death of your, your wife or, or your animal? 
My wife. The wife. That's got to be so surreal, Dan, that you have this, you're living your life. You've got this brand new marriage, a young girl in her, you know, early to mid twenties. And all of a sudden one day she's just taken from you. It's got to be extremely hard to just, I'm trying to understand how you manage that then in the months and years that ensued thereafter. Right. Well, I, at the time I was living in New York, um, and I I was like, I've had with New York. I had cancer in New York. My wife died in New York. So I moved for a while. I moved first to Texas. I moved to PA. You know, but it made me think also life is short. You got to do something. So like, like, you know, now I'm an author, you know, I own a tattoo shop. So all the stuff that I do, I'm like, I don't have time to just sit on my ass and play video games. I have to do stuff. Through everything you've gone through, I'm curious. To you, you, your Facebook page has the your intro quote says, "quote I am the devil, and I'm here to do the <laughs> devil's work." Unquote. So elaborate on that. What do you mean by all that? Well, that that's a quote from Dell Rejects, actually. Um, that's uh, Otis from Dell Rejects, and I'm kind of known in the tattoo community as like the horror guy, and like the books I write are horror books. So you know. That's a great movie. That's a great quote. I just put that on my page. I actually don't believe in the physical devil. You don't believe in that? Yeah. So you mentioned that um, you have turned to tattooing. What would you, what would you say that your, uh, um, that your style is, if you had to define that? It's uh, dark illustrated realism. Like when I first started, I was uh, doing straight up realism. I think I might have been the first guy doing color portraits, you know, but I kind of ventured away from all of that. And, and now I figure what, because tattoos spread over time. So, you know, you can't do something that looks like a photograph that's so going to look like a photograph five years later. So you have to up the contrast a little bit and make it a little more illustrative, which, which I've done. Tattooing's been therapy for you. <laughs> well, I got into tattooing as a way to pay the bills while I got a quote real job, you know, like uh, as an illustrator. Like I wanted to be a comic book illustrator, but then I just enjoyed tattooing so much, and they gave me so much more control. Like I interviewed DC Comics and Marvel Comics and Image Comics, and they're very, very controlling, and they pay very little. So I, I stuck with tattooing. And I just enjoyed it so much. I enjoyed the community. I enjoyed the freedom. I've traveled all over the world. So I just stuck with it. You talk to your parents at all today? I've seen them in person like uh, 20 years ago. Um, I've talked to them on the phone. Um, I talked to them about like once every like three months or four months. Got it. Okay. Are they proud of you? Are they proud to see what you've been able to create and accomplish on your own? Well, they say they are, but I mean, who knows? Like, I, I remember my mom called at one point and, you know, she's like, you know, how's it going? And usually when they call is because I don't even look at the call ID. I just figure out the phone. I'm like, oh, I'm wrong. Uh, <laughs> but I remember I was talking to her and she's like, you know, how's it going? I was like, oh, it's going really well, you know. And she's like, oh, but you're around such horrible people. I was like, Mom, they're better than you. 
Mm, mm, mm. That's the kind of relationship we have. I see. I see. Very interesting. Uh, We're getting close to finishing up. You've had quite a story. You've gone through a lot, and you continue to overcome. Uh, I do believe that there are people like you who come from colder upbringings, we'll call it, for lack of a better word, um, who are more equipped, who are better equipped to handle life's adversities. So while I think, you know, we all want the the cozy, warm upbringings and our parents to sometimes be helicopters, maybe, um, there is there are other benefits on the other side of the coin that allow people that have gone through some tragedies like yourself to uh, uh, be able to respond to these adversities in a, in a better way, in a stronger way, I'll say. Uh, you mentioned that you're involved in other things, tattooing. Talk to us also. You do have a podcast. What exactly is that about? Well, I, I write, and uh, my latest book is called The Never Dead. It's like an anthology. And I run this podcast, and a bunch of the authors I interviewed put in short stories for the anthology. So, you know, that the podcast is mainly focused on artists and authors and, you know, stuff like that. It, like it, it's kind of like sci-fi and horror based more than anything, but everything feeds like one thing feeds into the other. Like I do a lot of book covers, I do a lot of magazine covers. You know, I I write, they write. You know, it it, it all like, it's all like a complex group where one thing feeds into another. And you're in Austin, Texas now, correct? Actually, I moved. I was in Austin for a while, but right now I, I'm back in New York City and oh. I have a shop here. Wow. Okay. So you, you had to get away from New York to clear your mind, but home is where the heart is. You had to get back there eventually. Right. Well, also, like the style of tattoo I do is not real big in Austin. So I was traveling a lot. Like I do like a month long guest spot in Europe and stuff like that. But in Austin, in, like traditional is big. And, you know, the, the like dark realism thing is big on the East Coast. I see. So yeah. I- I was going to say you I was going to say if you were still in Austin I was going to see if you were going to be doing Joe Rogan's next tattoo that would have been pretty neat. <laughs> um but listen uh, all right we we talk about that we could people want to see more about you they can go and, and they can see the podcast they could see the uh, uh books all these other things that you have going on danhank.com we've linked it in the show notes anywhere else you want people to find you on social media website etc. No that's good about uh, dead guy LC on Instagram that's my uh, company name. I was Dan Hink on Instagram, and somebody hacked and sold my account. So <laughs> now I'm Dead Guy LC. Hey, uh, Dan, this has been really uh, fascinating and uh, insightful. I-, I appreciate your time and-, and continued blessings to you. All right. Thank you.